You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. What I've seen is just incredible things that people have done. I've been amazed. I've seen people who just have these horrific life circumstances who have gone on to change laws, start foundations, do incredible art projects, allow them the space and the autonomy to do what they need to do to actually authentically heal from from what they're going through. My guest on the Happier at Work podcast today is Catherine Manning. Catherine has over 25 years experience training and consulting on trauma and victimization. She is the author of The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. As a senior attorney advisor with the Justice Department for 15 years, she counseled on victim rights in high profile cases like the Boston Marathon bombing, the South Carolina AME church shooting, the Madoff investment fraud and the case against Olympic gymnastics team doctor Larry Nassar. Now president of Blackbird, Manning helps organisations prepare for and respond to the challenges they face involving clients and employees in trauma. She has trained thousands of individuals on compliance with their responsibilities to victims and she teaches a course on victim rights at American University. Prior to her government service, Manning was an attorney in private practice representing Fortune 500 companies in class actions, insurance and media cases. On today's episode, Catherine shares some really great insights from her book. And when we talk about trauma, we we are referring to anything that has a psychological impact and, and affects our performance at work, essentially. So we talk about it in the broad context of the current global pandemic that everyone is experiencing right now. And the difference with this kind of trauma is that everyone is going through it at the same time. It may not be impacting us all in the same way, but because we're all dealing with it at the same time, it makes things a little bit more difficult. Stay tuned till the end where I will summarise the key points that we discuss on the podcast. As always, I would love for you to get involved in the conversation over on LinkedIn. Welcome, Catherine, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you here today and I can't wait to get stuck into our conversation this afternoon. Would you like to give listeners a little bit of a flavour of your background, tell them a little bit more about yourself and and how you got into what you got into? Absolutely. First off, thank you so much for having me here. It is such a pleasure to be here talking with you about these topics that we both care about so much. So my background is I have worked with crime victims for more than 25 years. I started off doing hotline work at a domestic violence shelter when I was in college and then um, did advocacy work and after law school ended up at the U.S. Department of Justice where I was a senior attorney advisor for victim rights, which meant that I did policy and training and advised the department on its work with victims in a broad array of cases, everything from a giant terrorism case like the Boston Marathon bombing to a fraud case like Bernie Madoff to child exploitation like the case against Larry Nasser, who was the U.S. Olympics gymnast team doctor who molested over 200 girls and women. So through all of that work with just a wide array of victims of different types of crime, I started to realize that there were 
broad overlaps in the types of things that people needed. So the skills that I would use to help a fraud victim weren't different than the skills I would use to help a domestic violence victim, right? We we all sort of need the same things when we're in trauma. And then one of the things I started to realize is I was using those same skills when a coworker would come into my office, you know, furious about the way his boss had just spoken to him in a meeting, right? And he's pacing in front of my desk and he's really agitated. And I realized I'm falling back on those same sorts of skills. And I thought trauma is not limited to crime victimization, right? It's trauma is much broader than we might think. And, and what I think of as trauma is really any kind of psychological injury that affects your performance. So my coworker, when he's so irate about the way he's been spoken to, he's humiliated, he, he can't concentrate, he can't get back to work. And he's liable to do something, you know, really foolish, like storm into his boss's office and start yelling at her or something, right? So he needs a little bit of support just to get righted so that he can get back to work and do the things he needs to do. So I started thinking through these issues and really it was the Me Too movement that motivated me to take the next step. When Me Too happened in 2018, I was both thrilled because I thought here we are having these conversations about things that I've cared about for decades. You know, I was, I was so pleased to see this happening in the media and entertainment and education, all these different industries. But at the same time, I felt like there was a, a real lack in the Me Too movement because I felt like Me Too did an excellent job of saying to survivors, it's okay to share your story, but less of a good job at teaching everybody else how to listen and be supportive okay. yeah, when people yeah. share that story. So that's what I set out to do. I thought, what is it that I would say are the things you should do when somebody shares with you a story of trauma? And I, I decided there were really five things and that... Um, ultimately became my book, which came out in February of 21, and it's called The Empathetic Workplace, Five Steps to a Compassionate, Calm, and Confident Response to Trauma on the Job. So I left the Justice Department uh, in 2019, and since then have been doing training, consulting, facilitation, coaching, and a lot of writing on this topic. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's such a fascinating, different area. And certainly I can bring in my own experiences of, let's call it trauma, based on the, dis- the description that you had of psychological, um, something that, that affects your performance. And I certainly have had that in a work context where there's something getting in the way because it's something that's causing me stress, you know, whether that is an argument with a coworker or a difficult client or something like that, where I can feel myself and, and it's really difficult to get out of that situation. I think it's kind of almost like a spiral where you're like, oh, I, I can feel this going on. I know what's going on, but how do I actually get myself out of it? So I can certainly relate directly to that for, and, and for something that's going on actually currently, um, that certainly has impacted me and it impacts on, on lots of different areas as well. I think, uh, so for example, not being able to sleep at night because you got something on your mind because it's impacting you psychologically. Um, so yeah, I mean, like there's, there's lots and lots of ways that it can show up in the workplace. And, and I love how you've brought everything together and it's not, it's not a different approach that you use and then highlighting this idea that actually it's great that we're, this is on the table now, people are talking about it, but how do we 
turn that around and how do we actually listen to the people who are talking? Um, so any any thoughts on what I just said there before we go on to really have a look at what those five things are? Uh, so I just, I'm glad that you sort of pointed out that it is really the same. Um, it, it almost doesn't matter what it is that is upsetting the person. Our reproach is similar no matter what. And um I feel like it's it's simple but not easy if that makes sense. So it makes total sense. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's not hard that I feel like um I can I can distill it into five steps. I even have an acronym, but that doesn't mean it's always easy. And so one of the things that I have tried to do in the book and in my training is give people just very practical tools and even sample language because that's one of the things that I found. I mean, um at the justice department I would be advising prosecutors who then have to help a victim who has just lost a loved one or is irate about having lost all of their money or something like that. And often they were like, I don't, I don't know what to say. You know, he's, yeah. he's really angry and he's been yelling at me and I don't know what to say. So that's what I've tried to do a lot is just give people some words to use, you know, because, you know, our minds can sort of freeze up in those moments. Um, And so having just a few, a few little um, tricks uh, in your back pocket can be very, very helpful. Yeah. Brilliant. I love it. So, I mean, let's, let's maybe start with the, with the five things, you know, what, how, where do we start? What's the acronym? What can people do to, to be better listeners or to deal with people who are going through those traumatic situations. Absolutely. So uh, the five steps are listen, acknowledge, share, empower, and return. And so the acronym is LASER, which the idea is that you should be trying to stay laser focused on the person and trauma and what it is that he or she needs. Um, The first two steps, I would say, are probably the most important. Um, So listening, which seems very, very simple, but as I was just saying, can be really hard in some situations, um, in part because of the way trauma affects the brain. When we are experiencing trauma, our brains do some automatic uh, responses that are very useful in terms of evolution, but not very useful in the moment. So one thing that happens is that when someone is experiencing trauma, they get a flood of adrenaline in case they need to fight off an attacker or or run, right, to safety. They also get a a muting of the parts of the brain that are less useful for defense. And most relevantly, the part of the brain associated with rational thought and complex decision-making gets a little (laughs) bit turned down because our brains are figuring, you know, I don't need to read a spreadsheet right now, I need to run, which is, again, from an evolutionary standpoint, makes a lot of sense, but is less helpful if you're at work and the danger is that your boss is embarrassing you in a meeting, right? (laughs) You you really need your frontal cortex and your your rational thought in that moment, (laughs) right, when it starts to get turned down, yeah. Um, The other thing that is a challenge, though, is even if we are not the person who's experiencing that trauma, we're all wired for empathy. It is hardwired into us. And what that means is we feel a little bit of the feelings of the people that we are interacting with or even just observing. Feelings are contagious. So when I'm 
talking to somebody in trauma, I get a little bit of that same flood of adrenaline and muting of the complex thought. So that's part of why it's important to have an acronym to help you along and also can be why it's hard to listen. You know, we suddenly find ourselves kind of fidgety. We're playing with our pen or tapping our foot. It's not because we want the person to stop talking. It's because we're getting a flood of adrenaline. But what that can communicate is, I don't want to listen. You know, we get a little Mm. bit wiggly in our seats and that kind of thing. So it's important to just know that that's, you know, this is I'm having that little adrenaline hit right now. And let me just take a few deep breaths and calm myself down so I can, Mm -hmm. you know, stay, stay still and present for the person. Um, a few other things on listening that I think are useful. Um, one is to, it's not, you don't just sit there mutely, right? You, uh, when somebody is talking, if you don't respond at all, they start to think that you don't want to hear what they're saying. So ask mm-hmm. questions, you know, who, what, where, when open-ended questions can be very useful. I generally advise staying away from why questions because they can come across as blaming, even if you don't intend yeah. it. You know? Yeah, yeah. I have heard that certainly um, from various different sources, but but I think mostly in uh, coaching. So you don't ask why because it's very uh, emotion driven, you know, and yeah. it kind of challenges the rationale behind what, what, you know, even if you phrase it in a different way, it might come across a little bit better. But why is kind of almost accusatory. Um, why did you do that? <laughs> why did you say this? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I get the why. So I maybe ask what was the reason or what or how or, you know, yeah. other, other W and H questions. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, another um, listening, active listening trick that I like is looping. So when somebody says something, maybe um, he says, I'm just furious about the way that Uh, Jeff spoke to me in that meeting. You just repeat the same words back. It sounds like you're really furious about the way Jeff spoke to you in that meeting. It feels almost like a trick because you're literally just mimicking them. But what I've found is for somebody in trauma, it is such a relief. I get this just, you know, gratitude. Yes, thank you. Somebody understands. (laughs) And I think the key is that you're using their same language. Frustrated is a little different than annoyed or angry. So, really repeating back the exact same words demonstrates to them that you're listening and it also can be very validating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're you and you're using their language. And again, I've heard this through coaching, but also in a business context, by using your client's language, it really helps to speak to them as if you're really speaking to them and understanding them. So yeah, really, really, really like that approach as well. And it, it like that kind of forms part of the acknowledge piece. And before we kind of move on to that, that is sort of you're acknowledging the trauma that they have experienced, you're acknowledging their feelings as well. So do you want to talk a little bit more about the acknowledge? Absolutely. Um, This step, I think, is so important and it is most often the one that gets missed. And usually I find when a conversation goes off the rails, it's because the person needs more acknowledgement. So the person finishes their story and you've been listening patiently the whole time, there can be a tendency to want to rush to, well, here's what you need to do, or I have just the person you need to talk to. Before you do that, it's important to take just a second 
and acknowledge that they have just shared something with you. An acknowledgement can be very, very simple, just a very one sentence even. Thanks for sharing that with me. I had no idea. That alone is enough to kind of pivot the conversation in a good, healthy way. Um, you could also say things like, I'm so sorry, um, that sounds awful, that sounds scary, whatever it sincerely sounds to you. Um, any of those kinds of statements are great. The types of acknowledgement or, or unacknowledgements to avoid are things that tend to either deny or distract from what the person has just told you. So a denial response is something like, I'm sure it's all going to work out fine, or he probably didn't mean that. A distraction response is along the lines of, you really just need to focus on your kids right now. Or my sister went through something similar and she's just fine. <laughs> you know, let me tell you mm. what, what, what happened to her. Um, all of those are things where we're, we're sort of moving the conversation away. And what this person really needs is to know that we heard them. One of my favorite quotes is from Theodore Roosevelt, who was a U.S. president. And he said, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah. And I've heard that a few times recently as well. <laughs> really? in, in, yeah, in, it came up in an audiobook, and I'm trying to remember which audiobooks. I've, I've done a lot of reading so far this year, um, but it, it has come up and they kind of, they went into a huge amount of detail as well about analysing what that really means. And it's not showing people that you care about them. It's showing essentially that your values are aligned and it's kind of that under underlying thing that you actually care about the same things that they care about and you care about supporting them to achieve what it is that they're trying to achieve as opposed to just showing a level of care for them. So um, I thought that was, it was a really, really interesting insight. Um, but it's so easy to do something like that. Like, oh, I'm sure that'll all work out fine. And I'm sure you have nothing to worry about and tempting to do as well in a work situation, especially that you might just almost flippantly say, oh, you know, well, thanks for sharing that, but I'm sure everything will work out for you. And it's really good to know that that is, that's kind of, it's denying or diminishing the, the experience that someone is actually having, that they've felt open enough to share with you and, and being really vulnerable in that situation, I'm sure as well. Yeah, absolutely. And one other thing I want to talk about with regard to this, you know, I'm an attorney and often what people will say is, but if I acknowledge what they've shared, isn't that validating their version of the facts? You know, somebody maybe comes to me and says, I've been harassed or discriminated against. And if I am acknowledging that, that's kind of saying, yes, I believe you when I don't know, I haven't conducted an investigation yet. And I think that is really important to recognize. And we don't want to create the impression that we are just going to take wholeheartedly everything somebody says when we are, in fact, a fact finder and we're going to have to do an mm -hmm. investigation because yeah. that, that actually breaches the person's trust as well. You know, if I say like, I'm just, you know, I can't believe him. He's going to have to pay for this. This is awful what he did to you. And then later I conduct an investigation and he says, I've never even met that person or whatever, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. I, and then I have to go back and sort of walk back what I've just told this person. So that can also be very damaging to their trust of, of me and of the organization as a whole. So it's important that we not get ahead of ourselves. 
But that's why an acknowledgement, it really doesn't have to be more than thanks for sharing that with me. I'm not, I'm not validating anything about the facts that I don't know. I'm just saying, thank you for sharing that. That sounds really hard. That sounds really scary, right? It does. I can say right now, (laughs) legitimately, sincerely, and based on all the facts I know, that sounds really scary. Thanks for sharing that. That's really enough. I'm so sorry. You're, you know, sounds like you're going through a really hard time. I'm so sorry for everything you've been going through these last few weeks. Again, I'm not saying. I'm so sorry he treated you so horribly, right? Mm. (laughs) So it really is um, important the way that you word it, but you can be incredibly supportive and validating without getting out ahead of yourself in terms of what you actually know about the facts. Yeah, no, it's, I think it's, that is really, really important to call that out, especially given your background as well. You're like, I'm not admitting any liability to anything. Um, and yeah, so the next one then is share. Uh, do you want to kind of talk us through what that means in a little bit more detail? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that became clear to me in my work with victims for so many years is that one of the hardest parts of going through a traumatic experience is the loss of control. You know, you are driving home from work, you get hit by a drunk driver, you spend the next six weeks in the hospital. You didn't do anything wrong and it feels really unfair. It's really difficult and it's very hard to wrap your mind around the fact that sometimes bad things happen through no fault of our own. Um, and it's in particular that loss of control that's very, very difficult. So one of the things we can do to help people is to give them back some measure of control by sharing information with them. You know, they say knowledge is power, right? (laughs) So what can we share? Um, We can share facts. If we know any facts about what has happened, that's a great thing to share. You know, if um, maybe there's a company where... um, there's been a big data breach and we can share with people, you know, the data breach happened on this date, this number of users' information was taken, this is what we know so far about how it was accessed. Information, if you have it, is a wonderful thing to share. But you might not have that. Maybe this person is, you know, coming to you as the first time you've ever heard of this. There's still other information that you can share. You can share process information. So here's what happens next. This is how um, these complaints are handled. These are, this is how these decisions are going to be made about reopening or whatever it is. You can share values information. You know, you talked earlier about the importance of values. And I think people Mm. often underestimate that, as you had mentioned, that um, one of the things that's really important when we're going through uh, trauma is to know that the organization we're a part of shares our values. So yes, this, definitely. Yeah. 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 That, you know, please understand we take um, these kinds of allegations very seriously or um, we have a zero bullying policy, whatever it is that is your, your institution's values or even your personal values. Please know that um, these issues are very important to me personally. Those kinds of value statements can be very useful. And then the final thing we can share is even what we don't know or can't share, which seems a little counterintuitive. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but can be very helpful because it shows we're not hiding the ball. You know, we can say, 
I, I hadn't heard anything about this, but I'm going to see what I can find out. Or I'm not sure how these complaints are handled, but I will get back to you. Um, it shows that we're not hiding the ball. And Similarly, there might be information we can't share. So saying, listen, um, I'm so grateful that you have come to me and shared this with me. I'm going to have to conduct a further investigation. And because we want to make sure that the investigation is as fair to everybody, it means that if I'm protecting your story with confidentiality, I have to protect everybody else's as well. So I'm not going to be able to share with you everything I learn, but at the end, there will be a report or whatever it is. So mm. even giving them that kind of information does return some power and and can make them feel much stronger and safer in that interaction. Yeah, brilliant. And again, that is, that's something that has come up in a previous podcast only a few weeks ago, actually, is this um, as a leader, for example, in an organisation, just saying, listen, I do know the answer, but I'm not in a position to share it right now. Like I do know, but I can't actually share that with you um, because of XYZ reason, company policy, or it's, I don't know, classified information or whatever it might be, but you can't actually share it, but you are set, you're being transparent about the fact that you, you have that information. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things that I really came to believe in all of my work with victims over those decades was you can tell people almost anything if you do it with respect and and openly and honestly. Where things run into problems is where people try to avoid <laughs> answering a question, you know, like I'm just, you know, I know she's going to ask me and I can't tell her, so I'm just not going to answer the phone. That's yeah. where people get really, really frustrated. So just being open and honest and saying, you know, I'm not able to share that with you right now. And here's why, like you said, is is really so much better. Yeah, yeah. No, I like this. I mean, it's it's quite simple. Like you say, the respect and being open and being honest with people rather than rather than avoiding, um, which is very tempting to do as well. You know, whether you're avoiding a, 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 a conversation or a phone call or an email or something like that. If you'd like to know more about what I can do for your business, please head over to my website, happieratwork.ie, where I have more details on the services that I offer. I offer various different types of things for organizations like yours. I offer speaking, coaching, consulting, with a huge focus on data and analytics and how to use data to make better people decisions. I have a couple of ongoing public projects at the moment in relation to researching employee well-being, first-time managers, and I will be making those results publicly available as well. So if you would like to get access to that, head on over to my website. What's the next step then? The next step is empower. And I really think of this as being as important for us as listeners as it is for the person in trauma. Some of us, myself included, are fixers. Oh yeah, I can relate to that. How do I fix that problem? Right. Oh, you've come to me with a problem. I know just what you need to do. And and not only am I going to tell you, but I'm gonna I'm gonna walk you down there. I'm gonna take these next steps for you. I'm just I'm gonna make it all better. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, The problem is, uh, there are multiple problems. One is we run ourselves ragged, right? I mean, we, Mm. you know, two is we are taking away autonomy from the person who is the person experiencing the trauma. 
We want them to be able to take those next steps for themselves. They're also... They also know more about what they actually need. You know, we never know as much as they do about what is actually going to be helpful for them. And so if we try to do everything for them, we will never be as good as if they do it themselves. And it gives them back that sense of power that we were just talking about. So it's really, really important that we not try to just take over for them. Mm. Just try to remember this is their path to walk, right? their path. We can give them tools for the journey, but they have to walk it themselves. So what we what can we do in terms of tools? It's useful to know about some resources that might be available either in your organization or in your community. So for example, anybody who works with people should know the security options in your in your firm or your organization. Do you know right now if somebody said, my ex-husband is out front with a gun do you know who you would call, right? Mm. And, and if you don't know, find it out now and put it in your phone so that when it does come up, you're not scrambling to figure it out, right? Yeah, so yeah. know the security options, know counseling resources that are available. Mm. A lot of organizations have some sort of therapy you know, options that are free and confidential. Make sure you know what those are, particularly if you're in HR or a manager, you know, you're responsible for others. Um, also, flexible work options. We've all seen how crucial those are in this past year. Um, but it's not only in the pandemic that they're useful. They're, they're useful all the time because they really can be the difference between somebody being able to continue to work through a, a traumatic experience and not. So mm-hmm. make sure you know what those flexible work options are. And then also it's just a good idea. I actually have on my website a little one pager of resources um, that are US based, but you would be able to see at least the types of things to know about in other countries as well. Um, mm-hmm. So things like the suicide hotline, where to report child abuse, where to refer somebody for um, alcoholism, drug addiction, just the things that can come up. You know, we're all human mm. and and you never know what's going to walk through your door. So having yeah. a, a little Rolodex or a, a list of resources can be very, very useful. Great. Yeah, no, I, I love that. Um, and the, the, what's something that occurred to me, actually, as you, you were talking and this idea of fixing and you're you're taking that sense of autonomy away from someone. And this, to me, goes back to the idea of control. So when someone experiences a trauma, the biggest thing is that they lose this sense of control. And that's essentially what autonomy is. So having that sense of choice and control over what it is you do and how you do it. And in order to empower them, you need to give them that sense of control back. Like they are in control of this situation of of finding their solution. You might be able to point them in the right direction, but ultimately they are responsible for doing that for themselves. Yeah, I think it's so important. When we take over, we we sort of minimize their power and it also can be damaging to the relationship. You know, I have done a lot of work in domestic violence and there is, that is an area where it is very, very difficult. You see somebody who is in a dangerous situation and you want so much to get them out of the, that danger. And you think, well, this is the exception to that rule, right? This is the exception where I really need to come in and, and just physically pull them out of that household. And what ends up happening is they, 
they will go back. I mean, on average, um, it takes seven times to leave an abusive relationship, right? So most likely they will go back and then they no longer see you as a resource because they're embarrassed or, you know, something. They they feel like you are no longer somebody they can go to. So you've now cut off um, a a source of support for them. Um, I will say though, I mean, it is really, really hard. (laughs) It's really hard to do that. Um, And Mm -hmm. so I guess my final piece of advice on this piece is um, I think the benefit of having worked with victims for so many years is that I I have seen the sweep of what happens. And so I know that where this person is today is not where they're going to be in six weeks or six years or 16 years. Mm. So trust that this process, you know, is not it's not ended, right? They they will continue to grow and change and they are more likely to get to the place of healing if we don't interfere with it by trying to take over from them. And what I've seen is just incredible things that people have done. I've been amazed. Um, people, I've seen people who just have these horrific life circumstances who have gone on to change laws, start foundations, do incredible art projects. So, I know it's hard, but allow them the space and the autonomy to do what they need to do to actually authentically heal from from what they're going through. Mm, I really, really like that. And then there's one final step in the process, which is return. Return, right? We all have to go back to work sometime, right? (laughs) So I really think of return in two ways. One is... um, just literally returning to the person. So the conversation ends, you've, you know, helped as well as you can in that conversation. And then later, just go back and check in. I actually will put it on my calendar, you know, in two weeks, check in with so-and-so and and ask how his mom is doing, something like that. Um, But return is also a return to ourselves because it's really hard sometimes to support people through challenging experiences. So we have to do what we can to take care of ourselves so that we don't fall into compassion fatigue because it really can start to weigh on us over time. So I talk about this in greater detail in the book, but things like making sure you have some sort of self-care routine, that you're in the habit of sharing your own experiences, talking to people about things that you struggle with, and also knowing your warning signs. You know, different people have different signs, things that happen to them when they start to run a little too low on their energy. Um, It could be that things that are normally fun suddenly start to seem like a lot of work or you're tired all the time or you can't sleep at night or you're starting to get sick a lot you you get short-tempered or sarcastic you know those kinds of things can sometimes be a warning sign um for people who struggle with addiction this is definitely when it will sort of tap you on the shoulder so Mm -hmm. just recognize for yourself what are your warning signs and and when you see that happening that's the time to double down on the self care and the the talking about it yeah yeah so do whatever that means to you whether it's you know phone a friend some journaling meditation getting out to nature going for a walk going for a run going for a swim sea swimming has really taken off here during the pandemic um, <laughs> wonderful yeah yeah being you know one of the one of the joys of being on an island you know mm-hmm. that it's uh you never 
too far probably from somewhere that you can go for a swim <laughs> certainly in Dublin anyway um brilliant and that's uh, like another thing that I would love to talk with you about Catherine is the pandemic and the fact that that is a trauma and even if we don't recognize it now and and things are starting to slowly change uh you know with, with the vaccinations being rolled out and um, certainly here we're you know there's I don't know what the percentages are currently but but they they are starting to be rolled out and I know I have some friends and colleagues in the US who are fully vaccinated already at this stage but I mean, from my own perspective, I, I feel like we won't really know the full impact of this pandemic until a few years time. And we look back and we think, wow, that really had a, a really bad impact on business, on uh, mental health, whatever it might be. So do you want to talk me through that as a, a trauma concept, if you like? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is so important the way that we support each other right now, in part because of this concept of psychological safety, which your listeners might be familiar with, but just in case people haven't heard of it, I'll go over it quickly. So, um, Google, the company a few years ago, did a study where they were trying to find what made for a healthy team, meaning a productive, creative team. And because they're Google and they can search everything under the sun with infinite resources, right? They looked at thousands of different teams. And so they compared teams where everybody had the same background or everybody had different backgrounds or teams where people socialized after work or where they didn't and teams where there was one strong leader, no strong leaders, a lot of strong leaders. And they couldn't find any baseline that that sort of carried through for why some teams were successful and some weren't until finally they hit on this idea of psychological safety. And what psychological safety means is I feel comfortable admitting that I don't know the answer or that um, I made a mistake or that I'm having a hard time right now. I'm struggling. And in fact, what the study found is the fastest way to build psychological safety on a team was to support each other through times of trauma. And when teams had psychological safety, that led to just exponential increases in, you know, better communication, productivity, creativity, output, everything, you know, um, loyalty, kind of across the board, more successful teams where there was psychological safety. Um, normally on a team, you might have one person out of 20 who's experiencing a trauma, you know, somebody who is lost a spouse or you know, struggling with addiction or whatever it is. You might have one person. Right now, everybody's experiencing trauma. Yeah. You know, with the pandemic and political upheaval and environmental disasters and economic uncertainty. I mean, we really are seeing just trauma across the board. And so this is this moment, right? If we can lead well and support each other well in this time. We have this opportunity to build these strong bonds of trust within our teams and our organizations, and that is going to carry us for years to come. I really feel that the way that we support each other in this time is going to reverberate for decades. Mm. Yeah, I, I have a challenging question that sort of come to my mind, and that is, 
and this is purely anecdotally from experiences that I've heard about, but it's the situations where people are not getting that level of support from their organisations, from their teams, and they don't feel psychologically safe. And interestingly, earlier today, I had a wonderful conversation with the lady all about psychological safety. I, I really love that concept of it. And she will be coming onto the podcast, but probably not for a few months time at this stage. Um, but yeah, like it's such an interesting and important topic for creating better work environments. Um, but yeah, sorry, back to this idea of like not all organizations are doing that. They're not getting it right. So mm-hmm. A, I suppose, what's the fallout from that? And B, what can we do to to start making that change? Yeah, the flip side of it is, um, I think, institutional betrayal, which is another concept that you might have a sense of just from the name, but I'll, I'll explain it sort of quickly. And I'll explain it the way it was explained to me, which is you have to kind of walk through a few hypos. So first, envision a child who's been abused by a parent. There will be a a physical injury from the abuse, maybe bruises, but then on top of that, there's a psychological injury that comes from the fact that this child was hurt from somebody that he looked to for support and protection. That psychological injury can last far longer. So long after those bruises have faded, that psychological injury will remain. Next, envision a a college student who is assaulted on campus and she goes to her college counseling center or Title IX officer for support. And instead of being supportive, that person minimizes what she experienced or implies it was maybe her fault. There will obviously be the injury from the assault, but now there's a second injury right? A psychological injury that came from the fact that this institution that she aligns herself with and she looked to for support and protection has instead hurt her, right? Has not supported her and has breached her trust. That's called institutional betrayal. And the injury from that can last even longer than the initial injury. Even in that hypothetical, I've heard of women who say, you know, What was worse was the second one. You know, I knew that guy was a jerk, but I thought my college would stand by me, right? Mm -hmm. And so in times of trauma, we look to our leaders to support and protect us. We look to our institutions, right? The ones that we share values with to support us. And when instead they... um They either communicate inconsistently, they enact policies that we fear are going to put ourselves or our loved ones in danger. That can create a second injury, and that's a psychological um, injury that can last for many years to come. That that breach of trust in that moment when we when we really needed support, similar to you know on the on the positive side that we talked about with psychological safety, on the negative side as well, it can reverberate for years to come. So that's again why it's so important the way that we support each other right now. And then in terms of what I advise leaders on how to lead well in this time um, or any times really of of trauma. Number one, you have to have employee-friendly policies in place. So everything you say is going to ring hollow if your um, your policies are not actually protective of your employees in whatever way in terms of you know how you're reopening with the pandemic or how you handle complaints of bias, whatever it is, you need to have good, strong employee-friendly policies in place. 
you also have to talk about them. <laughs> it, the policies aren't doing anybody any good if they're just you know buried on a website or on a shelf somewhere. So you have to make sure that people know about the resources that are available, and you won't always know who needs help. So use um, you know emails, staff meetings, anytime to say, hey, I don't know if everybody is aware of this. We have some great counseling resources here at the firm or in the in this organization. Here's how you access them. They're really great. They're free. They're confidential. You know, make use anytime to so talk about them. The third thing is um, talking is great. It's also really important for leaders to walk the walk, right? Like it's not Mm -hmm. just talk the talk, you have to walk the walk. So saying these counseling resources are out there and they're really great is is wonderful, but even better if you can follow it up with, I've used them myself and I found Mm -hmm. them incredibly helpful. You're modeling to people that it really is okay to ask for help when you need it. I know it's something that a lot of leaders feel uncomfortable with, but um, that is one of the things that came out of the Google study, actually, is they found um, the strongest sense of psychological safety came from teams where the leaders had both the self-knowledge and the self-confidence to open up about their own challenges. And then the final step that I think is really helpful, um, particularly in this time when there is so much trauma, it's almost the air that we're breathing right now, is to look for opportunities to make meaning. Everybody needs to feel needed. And, you know, we can't be everywhere. So look for opportunities to encourage the people on your team to support each other. You know, can you create a support group in your organization of people who are caregivers or um, people who have kids who are immunosuppressed or are homeschooling or whatever it is, you know, come up with ways to encourage people to support each other. Um, those, you know, food drives, clothing drives, all of those things really give people a sense of purpose and a, mm-hmm. a mission. And it can be very, very useful for people, particularly now when we've often been so isolated and we feel like I'm not really connected to anybody. So look for opportunities to create those connections. Lots and lots to uh, to think about and to work with there. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's so right. And as we start to emerge it's it's really thinking about what are the ways to do that. And and interestingly, this idea of the walk the walk, that is something that again has come up on the podcast multiple times and something I'm very interested in myself. We spoke on the podcast a few weeks ago about this concept of vulnerability and uh, when leaders can show that level of vulnerability, it gives permission to other people then and it, cre- it starts to create that psychologically safe environment. Now, I, I don't want to dwell too much, but the lady who I spoke with earlier, she was saying it doesn't even have to start with the leaders. It can just start with the individual. It's a very individual thing to be in a psychologically safe environment. So it doesn't have to start at that more senior level. Um, so so much to to think about and I'm so looking forward to to kind of summarizing all of the key points in when when we kind of get to that stage but Catherine the question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast what makes you happier at work um I feel like it has been the privilege of my life to be able to be engaged in these conversations right now in this moment when we are struggling so much as a world with so many challenging issues. I have been so privileged to get to speak with some really incredible leaders. And like you said, you know, everybody's a leader. You lead from where you sit, right? It's by the way that you live your life. 
So I've just gotten to speak with really incredible leaders from all over the world about how to support each other in this time. Um, I do... I do uh, training and facilitation. We've had just incredible conversations. I also do one-on-one coaching and and consulting and um, and writing. And so, getting to be engaged in these conversations right now, when it seems so um, crucial, so really, really important, has just been the greatest joy of my life. Brilliant, love that. And if people want to find out more about you, about your book, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, so I'm on all sorts of social media. I'm on um, on Instagram and Facebook at Empathetic Workplace. I'm also on Twitter at KL underscore Manning. And it's also, um, if you go to my website, which is KatherineManning.com, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E, Manning. I was uh, named after Katherine Hepburn, so it's A-R-I-N-E <laughs> dot Manning.com. You'll be able to see all of the links and um, you can even download the first chapter of the book and take a look. Brilliant. That's that's excellent. I'm really, really looking forward to checking that out myself now as well. And I did notice and because of the way I spell my name and because no one outside of Ireland really can spell it, <laughs> I'm very conscious about how to spell other people's names. So I was going to, to raise that. That's Catherine with an A as opposed to an E and a K as well. Right. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I, I really, really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for this opportunity. I've really loved our conversation. That was my guest, Catherine Manning, talking all things trauma in the workplace. I want to recap on some of the key points that she covered. But before I do that, I wanted to remind you to get involved in the conversation on LinkedIn. I generally post about the podcast and we do a weekly LinkedIn Live as well with the guest of the week. So feel free to comment under any of those or uh, if you have any questions as well, feel free to comment or to reach out directly to me. So the five things to become a more empathetic listener when you're dealing especially with trauma in the workplace is listen, acknowledge, share, empower and return. And I will go through each one of those individually and do a quick synopsis of what it means. So to listen, sometimes it can be quite difficult to be the listener of a traumatic experience. And you get a sense of empathy towards the person and you get a flood of adrenaline because you're feeling what the others are feeling, essentially. So maybe take some deep breaths, listen and respond and ask questions. Repeat their words back to them using the same language. And I I did really enjoy that, that a lot of these techniques you'll find in uh, coaching as well. Number two, then, is acknowledge. And that's really just thank you for sharing that or I'm so sorry or that sounds scary and it's just acknowledging the feelings that the person has you don't have to go into a huge amount of detail beyond that um the key thing here is not to deny or distract so there is the tendency or there is the temptation to say something like I'm sure it'll all work out fine or you really need to focus on x right now It doesn't have to be more than just accepting the facts that someone has brought to you. Number three then is sharing. And really it's, I suppose, honing in on this sense of loss of control. When someone has had a traumatic experience, you know, it's the 
greatest sensation is that they're not in control anymore. So it's about giving back this this sense of control or this measure of control by sharing information. So whether it's a facts or the process or here's the next steps that we need to take, uh, sharing your values, your own personal values or the organisational values. So we take these allegations seriously, for example, is, is one thing. Um, be respectful, open and honest rather than avoiding be open if you don't know. So I'm not sure how this is handled, but actually I can go and find out for you. Number four then is empower. And that's letting them know that you want to fix things. But again, we spoke about this, that the temptation is we want to fix other people's problems for them, but you need to let them have the autonomy to fix things themselves. So uh, autonomy is all about having that sense of choice and control. So you can present the resources available to them. So security or counselling, flexible work options, for example, and trust that the process is not ended. It's all part of a journey and it's Empowering someone is giving them the tools that they need in order to make the best decisions for themselves rather than trying to jump in and fix things for them. Number five then is return. So this could be returning to work. So checking in with someone or it could be returning to ourselves, taking care of ourselves. Sometimes we can get compassion fatigue, but build in a self-care routine, share your own struggles, know the warning signs. So do you have a problem with addiction or do you turn to sarcasm, for example? And that could be a warning sign. Again, this concept of psychological safety has come up and I will be doing a future episode specifically on psychological safety itself. So do keep an eye out for that. Being comfortable admitting that you don't know the answer and that you're having a hard time. It's really about leading well and and providing that level of support for each other. We spoke about institutional betrayal. So once the trauma has happened, then are you being let down again by the system or by the process that is in place or not in place? And this comes across as a breach of trust. One of the the good quotes that I took from the conversation is, in times of trauma, we look to our leaders to support us. We spoke about the various different policies. So number one is having an employee friendly policy. So that's really about putting people first. Number two then is talking about those policies that you have in place so that people know the resources that are available to them. Number three is walk the walk. So an example of that is a leader saying that I've used them myself, for example, of the counselling services that are available. Having that self-knowledge and self-confidence to open up about your own challenges. Number four then is look for opportunities to create meaning. So can you create support groups around the, the purpose or the mission so that you can feel connected to other people as well? And that wraps up the key points that I covered with Catherine. As I mentioned, please do get involved in the conversation on LinkedIn. I would love to know what you think of today's episode and let me know what your thoughts are in the comments. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.